everyone, my name is Miriam Trujillo. And I'm Nicholas Rodriguez. And welcome to the third episode of Dural Academy STEM Break. We are here with a very special guest, Mr. Max Mota, Dr. Max Mota. <laughs> Our guest, Dr. Mota, is knowledgeable in the fields of medicine as well as the real estate market. He is currently a director at Humbler River Hospital in Occupational Health and Safety. So, Mr. Mota, first off, uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself, um, who are you and what is your background in the medical field? Sure. So my name is Mac. I've been a little bit all over the place. Um, I was born in England, but raised between England, Venezuela, used to the United States and Canada. I did part of my high school here in Canada, and uh, I went to Venezuela to do medical school. Um, interestingly enough, I wanted to do engineering, but I ended up doing medical school. Uh, I applied to both and just to get my dad off my back. And I got accepted into medical school and not engineering. So I found myself either coming back to Canada to finish more years of high school or starting medical school at the young age of 17, which is what I did. I got my license to kill, as we say, at 22, turning 23. I uh, did my return a year service contract uh, in Caracas at a municipality called El Atijo. And I did that for about two years. And I came back to Canada as a foreign trained physician. And for those who train outside Canada, it can be a little bit of a daunting challenge. The same for anybody who trains as a foreign trained physician in the US. You have to go through all the exams, the USMLE steps and the equivalents here in Canada and whatnot. So I started that process. I got a fellowship in uh, uh, transplantation, mainly liver transplant, but also pancreas and uh, intestinal transplant at uh, Toronto General Hospital. And I did that for about three years. Then I stayed as a clinical research associate for another four years. And then I started doing some consulting and whatnot. I never went through residency, which is uh, an interesting approach. That was my goal to do the exams and whatnot. But I ended up doing consulting. I ended up getting into real estate. And uh, for the last five years, I've been at uh, Humberger Hospital. I initially came as a consultant to mix clinical data and financial analysis as to, you know, if a doctor chooses this type of um, hip uh, prophecies, you know, how much does it cost to the hospital and we lose money on it versus choosing another one. Um, from there, I became the manager of the research department and then the manager of occupational health. And for the last 18 months, I've been director of occupational health and safety, which has been an interesting ride because as you all know, COVID has been huge over the last two years. Um, it's given me quite a big an opportunity to develop myself in occupational health and safety. And the goal of an occupational health and safety department in a hospital is to make sure that all our staff, physicians and volunteers are safe. So we do pre-placement. So we make sure that anybody who comes as a new employee or as a new physician in the hospital has all the immunizations. They do not bring disease to our patients and that they are immune to many of the diseases that our patients may bring from um, tuberculosis to um, tuberculosis, MMR, uh, varicella, for example, measles, mumps, rubella, and whatnot. Um, we do, for COVID as well, we do respirator fit testing. 
So the N95 is making sure that it has a proper seal so you are safe when you're treating a COVID patient. And uh, we do exposures. So whenever an employee treats a patient that we didn't know that had COVID and later turns out to have COVID, you know, is this... risk to the to the physician and making sure that we determine if someone gets infected, is it occupational, is it community, and then make sure that we provide the supports to all our staff, physicians, and volunteer to return to work. So that's like the big, big, big thing. Um, the majority of the last two years have been dealing with exposures, with respirator fit testing, dealing with outbreaks in the hospital making sure that there's no transmission within the hospital, whether it is staff to staff, physician to staff, um, physician to patient, patient to patient. So we have big challenges, for example, with patients who are wanderers and they get out of the room and they go into a different room and infect other patients, for example. And we're very lucky because this hospital was built in 2016. So we have top-notch um, uh, technology most of our rooms are private. We have negative pressure rooms. We can even turn a whole floor if we need to into negative pressure rooms because we learned from the SARS epidemic that this is what we needed for the next epidemic. Um, so when COVID came, we were actually much better prepared than many other organizations. And we've seen that most of our transmission, for example, is staff to staff. Like we're really good with our technology, our air exchanges, and taking care of our patients so we don't get infected through our patients and we don't infect our patients. It's usually staff when they take off their PPE and have lunch together, that's when they infect each other and that's when it becomes a real challenge. So those are the things, making sure that you know people are safe and, and that they have the appropriate behaviors and to keep everybody in the hospital uh, free from not just COVID, but any other infectious disease or chemical hazards, for example. Um, you talk a lot about your your big projects right now, like every like the general notion of what you're doing in the hospital, what what your tasks are. Can you tell us more about how your day to day goes now, and also pre pandemic, how it has changed? Yeah, so we are. I mean, I on my background and what I did in research, I'm a very data driven person. So a lot of what I used to do before the pandemic was attendance support. So it was a lot of data analysis. It was uh, connecting to the hospital payroll databases, for example, and understanding when did people call in sick and why they called in sick and try to build algorithms and patterns to understand, you know, are people calling in sick before the weekends, after vacation and whatnot. And emergency leaves and emergency situations and sick time are supposed to be completely random. So if I can predict, if I can build a model that predicts your behavior, then it's not random and it's something that needs to be uh, intervened upon. So a lot of what occupational health and safety does is deal with non-culpable absenteeism, which means, you know, it's not your fault that you got sick. How do I give you help? But determining, what, determining what's culpable and what's not, it's a little bit of a challenge. So it requires a lot of data analysis, building algorithms to try to understand look, you're actually abusing the system. I have nothing to do with you. Let's refer you to HR or discipline or whatever it is because you're taking advantage of the system and then sit down with the people that are constantly calling in sick because of their chronic conditions, because 
you know, nurses, for example, they have a very physical job. Like they lift their patients. And although we have hoists and ceilings, ceiling hoists, and we have slings to help out and we do transfers between multiple people, it is a very physically demanding role. And it means that their bodies do get tired and worn out after many, many years. And, you know, a nurse that's been working for 30 years does have chronic bone and arthritis and conditions that, you know, they, they impact the way that they also are able to do their perform their role. And in this building, for example, one of the things that we found is because we have mostly private rooms, the distances that the nurses have to go through to see between patients and back and forth is significantly more. So if you have, you know, a simple ward with 30 patients, you can just go one back to another. But if you have private rooms, you go into a room, you do whatever, you come back, you go, you may have to walk like four or five rooms to see your next patient. And that's hundred meters that you run through or you know, 30 feet or 40 feet that you need to go in between rooms. And, and that's also very tiring. So um, trying to understand why people call in sick and then provide the supports, making sure that they have access to the specialists that they need to have access to the treatments that they need and then providing accommodations to say, you know what? Yes, you've been working for 30 years. Your knees are tired. You're not able to work, you know, the whole ward. Can we assign you to the first, the first four rooms, for example, so you don't have to walk that much and you can continue to do your work. So those are some of the things that we um, you know, focused on before the pandemic and that we're slowly, now that cases are coming down, trying to make sure that, you know, we, we focus on them again. And, and it's all about, making sure that your staff and our staff or physicians and volunteers and nurses and whatnot are safe and have a, a proper work environment to perform the duties as they should. Um, so data is a big part of that. That's one of the things that we did through the pandemic. We had to shift a lot of our practices. So um, we are one of North America's first digital hospitals, like Humber River Hospital after um, Mayo is one of the hospitals that has you know, a big um, command center, just like the NASA with all the screens and whatnot, and we're able to track patients when they get to the emergency and why haven't they been into the floor because the, the bed hasn't been cleaned, for example. So we're able to track digitally where people are and where our bottlenecks are. So we leverage that infrastructure to make sure that we could test staff we can see who has respirators and who needs to be fit tested and build automatic systems to notify staff and say, hey, you're overdue for this, come talk to us. Or uh, making sure that you know, uh, when COVID started, our turnaround times for tests were 10 to 14 days. And nowadays, I mean, someone comes to my department, gets swapped for COVID, and within two hours, my department gets a result automatically saying you're negative, you're positive. We call the staff and say, hey, you can stay at work, you can go, come back. So we've leveraged infrastructure and data to be able to keep our staff safe and keep them at work, especially with the health human resource crisis that have been going through. Because in the last, or the past two years, we've had about 1,700 staff infected to COVID, which is about 35% of our um population or our staff, um, about 1,200 of them. So two thirds of it happened within the last two months. So it's been, it's been really challenging for us. But leveraging on data infrastructure technology has been 
fundamental for us to make being a, making us or my department uh, able to respond to the crisis and make sure that everybody's safe and able to remain at work. That's very interesting. And I heard that you talked about your background and how you have shifted from different places throughout your life. So how has that shift in culture and education impacted the way you go about your career? You know, that's an interesting one. I think it, it also comes by my background. Um, when you look at people, your typical physician is usually something, someone who you know, had something in their life and they said, I want to be a doctor. And, and people go into medical school for many reasons. Many do it for money because, you know, it's a lucrative career. Um, or for the most part, it is. Um, many people do it because of their parents, um, which is somewhat what would happen to me. You know, your parents push you on it and you have that um, pressure to be, or you got to be a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist, or, you know, there's there's certain careers that parents go through and whatnot. And, and I'm third generation physician. So my mom's a physician, my grandfather's a physician, but that's not really... So I, I applied into medical school simply because I wanted to get my dad off my back. And um, I ended up getting accepted and having no other option but to do a couple more years in high school here in, in Canada or remain in Venezuela and do medical school. I started it thinking, you know, that this is not for me and whatnot. And, and what's interesting is that I, I definitely grew to like it, um, but I I don't necessarily had that passion that people says, this is the only thing I could do. I want to help people and I'm here to make, you know, people healthy and their lives better and whatnot. I, what I realized is that I like solving problems and those problems could be, you know, mathematical algorithm problems, which I use to figure out who's calling in sick for one reason or another. Um, it could be, Diagnostic problems, like someone comes and says, oh, this hurts, and this is what I have, and you go through a whole process to try to solve it uh, systematically and make a diagnosis and then a treatment plan and whatnot as a physician. So what I found is that I medicine, and, and when you look at what we call the social determinants of health, health is related to pretty much everything. Um, you know, your education impacts your health, and your health impacts your education. Um, education impacts where you live and where you live impacts your health. Um, so, and, and just like that, you have, you have education, you have housing, you have um, all, all the social determinants of health, which it's very easy using healthcare at the center of whatever it is you choose to find a way to link it. Um, so I've linked it uh, to data, I've linked it to research, um, and now into occupational health. Before I did it by linking clinical data and financial information to try to see, you know, what's driving the costs in certain areas. And it's interesting because, yeah, uh, an accountant could probably do this, but an accountant might not necessarily go and have a conversation with a physician and say, oh, Three percent improvement in the quality of life in the patient or whatnot. So that's that's interesting, and I, I work 
worked in a government agency here called Cancer Care Ontario, which is now, uh, it's changed name interesting uh, close to the pandemic. Um, but part of, part of what I did was leverage data and clinical knowledge to understand what we call the surgical efficiencies target program. And it is, you know, how can we shape our system um, as, a pro- as a province or as a state and help hospitals and healthcare providers be more efficient and share knowledge and share expertise and share best practices to make sure that we have the best outcomes with you know, the least cost possible. Um, yeah, and talking about uh, the algorithm, the way they're trying to be the most efficient you can with, with organizing hospitals and the general aspects of just being the best hospital you can be, what are your plans with your algorithm or the ways that you're trying to implement it into the future into other hospitals? Yeah, so for for occupational health in particular and, and the attendance support program, for example, one of the things that we're trying to do and we have a research project going on is we want to merge the algorithms into a dashboard where in principle, someone can come in and say, you know, I understand why someone is calling in sick and take the proper measures for it. So one, there's a hundred reasons why people call in sick and only one of them is actually being sick. I can't tell you how often we have people that call in sick, but it's their children who are actually sick and they don't have anybody to take care of. Or we have snowstorms here in Canada. Very recently, we had one in February, which was pretty much an emergency throughout the province. And about 20% of the staff could not make it to work. And a lot of them called in sick either because they couldn't make it here, which was technically not appropriate call, but many of them were just, you know, really tired and hurt from shoveling all the snow to try to even kind of make it here. So the goal right now is to really understand how COVID has changed the way that people call in sick, the patterns, how we can better support our staff and better. And so if you, if you use the data to understand why people behave the way they do, with the incentives that they have and the benefits that they have, then you're better as an organization and as a system, as a healthcare system, you know, to steer and nudge people and provide incentives to get the outcomes that you want. And that's where we want to go. We want to better understand why people do what they do, how it impacts their health, and how can we provide nudges and incentives to steer them towards you know, something that is beneficial for them and ultimately for the organization and the healthcare system itself. Yeah, so that's more the plans towards the hospital's route. However, what are your plans for the future? Do you plan to coin this specific algorithm? Do you plan on furthering your education? What are your personal plans? Personally, it's an interesting one. I one of the things that I've been wanting to do is actually travel. And I'm hoping that with what's happened in the pandemic and the shift to remote work, um, there's better ability, particularly in healthcare, because it's it's really challenging in healthcare. There's an expectation of, you know, we provide care and virtual care is good to an extent, but it can't always, you, there's some things you can't do virtually. So one of the things that I'm looking forward to is, you know, being able to leverage technology and remote work a lot better 
to be able to, you know, complement my other interests as well, including travel and maybe become a digital nomad like many people, which is very difficult to do in healthcare, for example. Um, you do see that very often people that work in, um, you know, IT and accounting and finance and whatnot. And it's a little bit more challenging when, you know, you have a whole department and people come asking, you know, questions all the time and just knocking on your door. And, and so the, I, I think that's, a, that's an interesting approach. Um, and the other piece is definitely learning. I, I, I think there's a lot more that I would like to integrate into my current toolbox. I think economics is a really interesting one where it's not just the money, but as I mentioned, the incentives and the psychology behind why people do what they do based on the economic incentives and the benefits plans that they have so we can make better decisions. So that's that's one area of expertise where I would definitely like to kind of delve into a little bit more and and um, and then probably pick up additional more tangible skills um, with being able, like I've, I've picked up a little bit of BBA programming, a little bit of SQL, because it, it really allows me to kind of bypass project managers and, and, and developers and just kind of play around with the data on my own, come up with the insights and then go back to the experts and say, okay, this is where I think, you know, our opportunities lie. Can we build something, um, you know, using this data or these insights? But if you have to depend on someone else to process the data and to derive those insights, it's, it's a little bit more challenging. And I think, you know, picking up additional tools to be able to process the data and derive those insights is definitely something that I want to continue to. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Moto. Really, every, everything that you've talked about and the things that you're trying to do are impressive and they're really going to help out in the world. Well, thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure and um, happy to be on your show and look forward to another one. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye.